Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The protests in Hong Kong continue to evolve in amazing ways. Today, school children formed a human chain around their schools. They were holding hands in their uniforms. Over the weekend, a rally at the U.S. consulate. There were demonstrators waving U.S. flags. They want Congress and the Trump administration to enact the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. With me is Justin C. He studies social movements in China and the diaspora. He's lead editor of the book, Theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement. Good to talk with you again, Justin. Good to talk with you, Jerome. Well, you know, when school children start surrounding their schools and start holding your hands, it speaks to the depth of the protest movement. Uh, this is something that is being endorsed by everyone from little school children. It's kind of an amazing thing. Yeah, so when we last spoke, um, we mentioned something about how the protests might transform in the future. And one of the things that I said was that school was about to start. Now school has started. And it seems that the human chain, which is being titled the Hong Kong way after the Baltic way, a call back to 1989, when people in Eastern Europe formed a human chain to sort of protest their um, conditions under Soviet communism, this Hong Kong way is sort of the tip of the iceberg, if you will, of how school children have been uh, reacting to recent events in Hong Kong. Some people have uh, refused to sing the national anthem. Some people have been singing Les Miserables, um, Do You Hear the People Sing? Sometimes chants of uh, Liberate Hong Kong, uh, the revolution of our times is being chanted in schools. And we're seeing videos of this. And so the Hong Kong Way thing is sort of like the tip of the iceberg, if you will, of more ruminations that are going on within schools. One of the other things that happened over the weekend was this large rally at the U.S. consulate where demonstrators were waving U.S. flags and they want Congress and the Trump administration to enact the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. And that's a pretty amazing thing to see a crowd full of people in Hong Kong with umbrellas and flags of the United States out there waving away. I think this particular move has been controversial, actually, in conversations among the protesters. I think the general sentiment is that the protesters want the U.S. government as an international power to intervene in Hong Kong. However, I think that there are some people who are saying, wait, that's calling for foreign intervention, which is part of Beijing's propaganda against the Hong Kong protests. So I think this is an item for discussion among the protesters that I'm continuing to watch. It's interesting, though, that a sizable number of them do want the U.S. to speak out and do things. And the, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, it's been around for a couple of years but it's got strong bipartisan support. Nancy Pelosi, you know, spoke out over the weekend and said, you know, let's go. And, you know, Marco Rubio supports it. They can pass that thing and send it on to the president if they want. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, what this also looks like is uh, Hong Kong people also appealing to the British government. Uh, uh, the British government is slightly different because it's one of the signatories of the Sino-British agreement, joint agreement in 1984 that handed over uh, Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty in a one country, two systems framework. 
So appealing to Britain is slightly different from appealing to the United States. Nevertheless, I sort of feel like these are appeals for international attention in a global city that is undergoing protests. The Trump administration is not really biting on this. They're not talking. I haven't seen a tweet from the president about this while he tweets about many things that seemingly are trivial. He hasn't really weighed in on Hong Kong lately. And the State Department, I just, I don't know where they stand. There were nobody in the consulate was giving any statement, even though there were thousands of people outside waving American flags. Yeah, I think this is an interesting point. Um, What I've been seeing is that Trump has basically called Xi Jinping, the leader of the People's Republic of China, a competent diplomat who he is sure can handle the situation in Hong Kong. That's not really a respond to Hong Kong demands for U.S. attention. What does it say about the U.S. commitment to democracy around the world? And one of the things that is a demand of the protesters is universal suffrage. And it would be interesting if the U.S. doesn't get behind universal suffrage as an idea. I think that's true. Um, One of the things that has been interesting over uh, watching the international attention about Hong Kong is that there's a sort of nervousness uh, because Hong Kong is considered a sort of world city that is a gateway to Chinese trade. And so if a government begins to comment too much on it, it can be accused of foreign intervention by Beijing and economic interests are therefore at stake. So I think that may be why some things are more circumspect as well. We see the German government taking a little more of a strident stand than the U.S. Uh, The German foreign minister is going to meet with Hong Kong's Joshua Wong. And obviously, Joshua Wong is someone who is big on universal suffrage and things. They're willing to stick their neck out. It's interesting. Again, there's a conversation here about who represents the Hong Kong protests. And the answer of course, is nobody. And so Joshua Wong has been one of these figures in Hong Kong who has been a topic of conversation because I think even if he himself argues that the protests are leaderless, it's very tempting to consider him a face of the protests that can sort of represent the protest interests, if you will, to foreign governments. And one of the things that I'm curious to see is how that will play out among the protesters. Certainly his arrest or him being detained at the airport for allegedly skipping bail, even though he had permission to go on this trip, has made him more of a sympathetic figure. But I wonder how the positioning of him as a sort of leader is going to play out. I'm talking with Justin C. He studies social movements in China and the diaspora. We're talking about Hong Kong and the protest movement. He's the lead editor of the book Theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement. And I wanted to move on now to some of the revelations about Carrie Lam and the Chinese leadership. Reuters had this sensational leak of a conversation she was having with business leaders and She has since withdrawn the extradition bill that started this whole thing to no uh, effect. There's four other demands and the protesters are moving on. The flap around her has gotten really interesting in the last week. Mm. 
It has. So the, the leaked Reuters tape is um, sensational because she tells them that um, she would A, resign, and B, if she had the choice, which are both sort of bombshell revelations. I think it's important to clarify that she has not yet withdrawn the bill. What she said is that she would direct the Secretary of Security to follow the procedures in Legislative Council to begin withdrawing the bill when Legislative Council convenes. So that doesn't mean that the bill has been withdrawn. It means that this is a future act. The other thing that she says in her speech is that in June, she had made an announcement that the bill was dead and that it would automatically lapse in July 2020. So the idea that the bill has somehow been withdrawn now is kind of a red herring. It hasn't yet been withdrawn. And so that's one of the things to watch. All right. That's worth thinking about. And to go back to the she would resign if she had the choice, uh, it really puts the uh, relationship with the Chinese leadership in the spotlight there that they are calling the shots that she cannot even decide her own position. Yeah, I think that that seems consistent with the reinterpretation of one country, two systems from the central government in 2014 when the white paper came out uh, clarifying the practice of one country, two systems in uh, June 2014 and the green paper came out in August 2014 saying that lead candidates for political office in Hong Kong would need to be vetted to see if they love China and love Hong Kong. So this seems to be one of those further clarifications that one country, two systems, and the high degree of autonomy that Hong Kong is supposed to enjoy, these are words that are up for interpretation. There's been a lot of critiques of Xi Jinping and the leadership in in China over what's happening in Hong Kong. And the idea that they know what they're doing is uh, certainly up for grabs here. Carrie Lam said that there was absolutely no way they were going to go in there and use force. And then you see a lot of threats of them using force. And how do you read all the inter-intrigue about how Xi Jinping is doing here? I think it's important to understand the national ideology at work here. Uh, One of the great social theorists of our time, uh, Slavoj Žižek, points out that what ideology is, it's not that uh, you are doing something purposefully, it's that a certain narrative is making you do it. And so the powerful narrative that I think is driving this is this idea that there is a particular Chinese ethnicity that needs to occupy the Chinese nation and its territories. And so if you are kind of uh, not part of that ethnicity, the solution to that is to assimilate you. And so the way that I read that is that Hong Kong is being assimilated right now. It's not just having its autonomy sort of taken away. It's that Hong Kong people who claim to be Cantonese and therefore not exactly Chinese nationals, these kinds of ideas sort of run contrary to the kind of doctrine of assimilation. And I think this is the sort of driving ideology here. 
if that's the driving ideology, this is not something that will be resolved at the end of these protests. This is something that the Han Chinese majority in China can drive until they get what they want. I think so. So I think that things look a little bit stuck, don't they? Um, because what is going on here is not a sort of battle over practicalities. It's a battle over ideology and narrative. How does the democracy movement in Hong Kong fight back? How do the protesters win if this is an ideological struggle with a giant population? Now, far be it from me to prescribe anything to the protesters. I don't really see that as the scholarly task. I think my task is to describe what the protesters have been doing. And it seems to me that what the protesters have been doing is to experiment with a protest movement that is leaderless. Now, the operative word that I think is going on here is experimentation. The protesters have, for example, acknowledged that they've made mistakes, for example, in occupying the airport and them, themselves detaining somebody that they thought was a cop. Uh, so I think that there's a sense of experimenting with how a society could operate, but I don't think that they seem to have the answers yet. And part of the reason for that is because they are leaderless. So nobody really speaks for them. How do you think all this experimentation is going to change civil society in Hong Kong? Because they seem to have a new identity. They almost seem to have shaped a identity uh, in the last few years that, uh, you know, they're just forging a new thing. So it's important to remember that a Hong Kong identity, this idea of being a Hong Kong person, didn't emerge from 2014. It emerged from the 1970s. And it was an identity that was positioned against the Cultural Revolution. Right? And so the identity at that time in the 1970s was that a Hong Kong person was a sort of urbane, Cantonese-speaking, uh, what uh, the sociologist Hugh Baker calls a sort of imitation suave James Bond of a kind of Cantonese mold. Uh, so the, this idea of the urbane Hong Kong person uh, has been around since the 1970s. I think that what's developed since 2014 is this idea that they don't want to be assimilated into what they see as a colonizing power, and that the tool of that colonization is the common Chinese ethnicity. And so you get this sort of undertone that a Hong Kong person or a Cantonese person cannot simply be equated with ethnic Chinese because ethnic Chinese runs the risk of creating this nation around an ethnic identity. But they've raised the stakes here to a point where they're really willing to make sacrifices around this identity. It's no longer just a, uh, you know, a suave James Bond kind of sophisticated idea about their identity. They are willing to make sacrifices. That's correct. And one of the interesting things that I haven't seen commented on is that some of the old sort of James Bond Cantonese style people uh, 
might even position themselves as what we might call pro-establishment, somebody who is for sort of uh, unification with Beijing and certainly for a sort of political stability that is uh, wrought by the Hong Kong government. And so these young people are not arguing for that sort of suave James Bond urbane identity. They're arguing against a pan-Chinese ethnic identity because they don't want to be assimilated. Well, it'll be fascinating to see what's next. Justin C. studies social movements in China and the diaspora. He's lead editor of the book Theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement. Thanks a lot for joining us again and talking about the protests and how they're evolving in Hong Kong. Thank you for having me. Robert Mugabe, the longtime leader of Zimbabwe, died a week ago. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with the author of Our Votes, Our Guns, Robert Mugabe and the Tragedy of Zimbabwe. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last week, the former Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe died in a hospital in Singapore. He was 95. We've devoted a lot of segments in the last 25 years since Worldview's been on the air to Zimbabwe. In 2002, I talked with African historian Martin Meredith. His biography of Robert Mugabe came out that year. It's called Our Votes, Our Guns, Robert Mugabe and the Tragedy of Zimbabwe. We started by talking about Mugabe's early years. He was born in 1924 in a country which was then called Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Um, He grew up under white rule, which was uh, a period of fairly intense discrimination against the black population. Blacks were on the whole regarded as second-class citizens um, and made to feel so. Um, But Mugabe was lucky in that he was born on on a mission station, on a Roman Catholic mission station, and because of that... Um, he um, was enrolled in the local school, quickly acquired a basic education, and proved to be a very bright uh, student, um, renowned amongst the teaching staff um, for his aptitude for learning and indeed for reading books. Uh, he was a rather secretive and solitary character. And as his brother once said, books were his only friends. He didn't make many friends, but he did show this extraordinary aptitude for for um, education and for self-discipline. And the Jesuits instilled in him a measure of self-belief, which in a way he's never lost. So he was a favored uh, youngster in, in, in many ways, but growing up in a very restricted um, world, dominated essentially kind of by whites and white supremacists. He, uh, his father left his family uh, while he was uh, young, Yes, there was a family calamity when Mugabe was aged 10 years old. 
And it was made worse, obviously, by the circumstances in which um, the family was living, that uh, being part of a, a, a mission or what was called a Christian village, um, it, it was um, a sign of disgrace that his father uh, abandoned the family, went off um, supposedly in search of work uh, to a town several hundred miles away, and actually never returned, um, set up home with another woman, um, with whom he had another three children, and abandoning um, uh, Robert Mugabe and his siblings. Um, and indeed, they grew up as a result of that um, in rather straitened circumstances. But it was it was not just the, the 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 lack of money which was a problem. It was the disgrace that was brought on the family anyway. And Mugabe has has never, according to other family members, has never ever forgiven his father for this this disgrace which he brought on the uh, brought on the family it's quite noticeable that when he became president he never ever mentioned his father at all he's never mentioned uh, it, 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 so little was known about his father that people wondered in fact who he was he was he was fulsome in his praise of his mother uh, who was a devout and pious woman and um, a rather remarkable christian in many ways uh, but he never said a word about his father um, and as I say, has never really kind of properly forgiven forgiven him for um, deserting the family. So he grows up with this um, uh, fractured family, gets a good education, and decides he's going to become a teacher. Yes. Um, how did that? Um, how did that? How did he veer off the teaching course? Well, he was a teacher for a very long time. Um, the, the 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 mission station, because of his extraordinary intellectual ability, and it was kind of pretty extraordinary. Um, by any standards, I mean, very extraordinary in, in, if you like, in Rhodesian terms, for a black person to have shown such aptitude and to be uh, uh, helped by essentially kind of white um, teachers. Um, but he he remained. Uh, well, he took his he he left the mission station with a teaching diploma and went off to kind of to teach in various different primary schools. And then he won a scholarship to a university in South Africa, the University of Fort Hare which happened to also be in the place where Nelson Mandela had studied kind of 10 years before. Um, and Mugabe then went on to acquire one university degree after another. He, um, and he then went off to kind of to teach in, in the, in the uh, newly independent state of, of, of Ghana, um, by which time he'd acquired three university degrees, which is very remarkable. Uh, he is actually uh, one of the most highly educated leaders that Africa has ever produced. In addition to the three degrees that he um, uh, uh, acquired early on, um, he then subsequently acquired another three degrees um, um, during his prison years. So he has in all six university degrees, and I don't know of any other African leader who's, who's acquired that many. You're listening to Worldview from Chicago Public Radio. I'm Jerome McDonald, speaking with Martin Meredith. We're talking about uh, Robert Mugabe. Uh, Martin's got a new book out uh, called Our Votes, Our Guns, Robert Mugabe and the Tragedy of Zimbabwe. Um, while he's picking up all these degrees, does Robert Mugabe uh, pick up ideology um, uh, preferences as well? Um, yes, gradually. Um, there was no sort of sudden conversion. When he went to Ghana on a teaching contract um, in 1958, Ghana at the time was led by a fairly charismatic figure called Kwame Nkrumah, um, who had ambitions uh, to turn Ghana into a socialist state. 
um, and um, to become a sort of center of learning for Africa and indeed a base for, libera- for the liberation of the rest of Africa. And all these ambitions had a very profound impact on Mugabe. As Mugabe himself has explained, he began to turn at that stage into a a fairly dedicated Marxist, certainly kind of taking on board a lot of Marxist ideas. And and probably one of the few um, African leaders, black African leaders um, in Zimbabwe who ever really did, if you like, have a fairly sound grasp of, of Marxist principles. And he, um, he met his uh, future wife there, uh, Sally, married her, had a kid. Yes. Sally was um, a Ghanaian um, and a, a, a teacher, a very vivacious, uh, warm uh, um, lady, um, and very attractive. Um, and whereas kind of Mugabe was always renowned for being aloof and cold and secretive and rather solitary, um, Sally was all, all, was the opposite. She was always at the center of laughter and, and fun, as well as actually being um, a fairly kind of seriously committed, politically committed um, woman. Um, and they got married in, in Salisbury, which is, as it was then called, the capital of Rhodesia, now, now Harare, the capital of, um, uh, of Zimbabwe. Um, and they had... A difficult, if you like, uh, introduction to family life in that, A, partly because Mugabe had decided to abandon teaching and, and um, catch on to the nationalist cause, and he did that in a very kind of dedicated, single-minded way. But they started a family, and, or tried to start a family, and their first child was stillborn. And their second child was born in very difficult circumstances. Sally was not a particularly healthy woman. And uh, the child died uh, when um, he was um, three and a half years old. So there was a, a, um, a family tragedy um, uh, which affected Mugabe deeply um, um, from, a fairly, um, from a fairly early stage. And... And during this time, you mentioned he's getting involved with the nationalist cause. And why why did he rise um, to the top? What was his agenda with the nationalist cause? And and why did why did he why did he become a mover? Well, he was one of the first to, having joined the nationalist cause at a rather late stage, one of the first to uh, commit himself to the idea of armed struggle against white rule. He, partly because of his education, if you like, partly because of his um, rather radical nature and, and the Marxist background um, that he'd had, he, he was probably the most radical of all the nationalist leaders. Um, and um, he, he was among, uh, among the leading figures who advocated armed struggle. Um, at the time, he was then arrested, along with pretty well all the other leaders of the nationalist movement, and spent uh, a period of 11 years in prison, um, rather like Mandela in a way, except that um, Nelson Mandela, um, who spent 27 years in prison um, um, for attempting armed struggle against the uh, white-run state in South Africa, the apartheid state. Um, But whereas Mandela emerged from prison determined to achieve a negotiated settlement with South Africa's white rulers, Mugabe left prison 
vehemently in favor of armed struggle against white rule, not only um, to bring down white society, but wanting to transform the country into a kind of socialist dictatorship anyway. That was always very high on his agenda when he set off for war after he'd been released from prison after 11 years then. And did, was there an alternative to um, Mugabe, uh, Mugabe in, in Zimbabwe? Were there nationalist alternatives? There were. The other main rival that he had, a man called Joshua Nkomo, um, um, was certainly in the running. He was a much more moderate figure. Um, he also controlled a guerrilla army. There were two guerrilla armies fighting to overthrow white rule. Mugabe was in charge of one, and Nkomo was in charge of the other. But Nkomo was a rather reluctant guerrilla leader. He was always hoping for a negotiated settlement. And indeed, he tried in secret to come to a deal with Ian Smith. But uh, Smith was a, such a recalcitrant and stubborn man that he more or less threw up every opportunity that there was uh, to come to a favorable deal and hung on for so long that basically what happened is, is that um, the war, the civil war against white rule spread and Mugabe, on the whole, um, because of his radical nature and because of the way in which he supported the largest uh, guerrilla army, um, essentially emerged on top in an election which was held as a way of resolving the civil war. Um, that election was held after the old uh, Lancaster House Agreement. He, he was committed to a military victory in Rhodesia. He did not want a negotiated settlement. But because of the because of the impact that the war was ham having on Mozambique in particular, and also Zambia, the, the African leaders of Mozambique and Zambia forced him to, first of all, attend the Lancaster House Conference, warning that they would withdraw their support unless he agreed to attend. But also, when he was very reluctant to sign the agreement which came out of Lancaster House, and indeed he was prepared to go off to the United Nations and denounce it. He was again warned that if he did that, the Mozambique in particular, his main supporter, would, would abandon him. I mean, he went through this honeymoon period where everyone uh, wanted him to succeed. The international community was uh, looking favorably upon uh, Zimbabwe, trying to help it out. Uh, he, and, he, and he seemed to be saying all the right things. People were um, rather surprised that this Marxist uh, leader was showing some degree of charm, some degree of cognizance about um, what he had to, to gain during this period. It was rather remarkable. I mean, coming from a background of where he threatened to put Ian Smith against the wall and shoot him as a war criminal and to seize all white land um, and to transform... Um, Zimbabwe into a, uh, into a kind of one-party Marxist state. His early years were marked by moderation as far as the white community was concerned. And indeed, the whites did benefit very substantially. Not only did they not have to fight a civil war anymore, but they were the beneficiaries in terms of, of, of government policies. I mean, the economy grew strongly. And because of the rather dominant position they ha held in the economy, uh, they gained substantially from that. It was not the case, however, that Mugabe was so accommodating to his black political rivals, to Joshua and Como and the minority um, Enderbele, um in Matabeleland, um, who had voted overwhelmingly 
for uh, for Nkomo's party. And from a very early stage on during his rule, Mugabe launched a fairly kind of vicious campaign of harassment and intimidation against his black political opponents in Matabeleland, which culminated in the campaign of military repression in the early 1980s, in which at least 10,000 civilians, possibly double that number, were killed, an outrage of major proportions, which at the time largely went unremarked on. It was a sign of how ruthless Mugabe could be in dealing with opponents. How do you explain... um how someone who's an independence leader who has thoughts about providing for his country in a in a you know a more just way than you know the people had before um, comes out and, and starts uh, starts off like that. Well, he's a man ob- obsessed with power, and power for Mugabe is not a means to an end, as it is for many politicians. They want to achieve something other than gain power. For Mugabe, power is the end itself. And everything that he has done since he first took office has been directed towards obtaining more and more power. Indeed, in 2000, he held a referendum in which he asked the general population to support him in his bid to acquire more power, even though he had dictatorial powers at the time. The remarkable thing is, is that the general population turned around and basically said no. Mugabe was defeated in this referendum, um, and indeed that is the point when he glimpsed at defeat um, and realized that his grasp on power was slipping, that he unleashed this campaign of violence intimidation, which has gone on ever since, intending to wipe out the opposition. So he is a man, if you like, consumed by almost a single ambition, which is to hold power, seize it, and uh, retain it, whatever the cost. Um, to outsiders who observe what's going on, it appears entirely self-destructive. And in, 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 indeed it is, is that Zimbabwe has been brought to its knees. It's bankrupt. It's desperately short of food supplies. It is a pariah state. It has no friends in the world other than Libya. It is on the verge of a major calamity. Um, And in these circumstances, um, it's kind of odd to um, come to the conclusion that, in a sense, this is all uh, a man-made disaster. Uh, But it is. Uh, It's entirely a man. It's a one-man-made disaster. Um, And it is Mugabe who has engineered this disaster. And it's for one purpose only, which is to go on holding power no matter what the cost. That was Martin Meredith, the author of Our Votes, Our Guns, Robert Mugabe and the Tragedy of Zimbabwe. I spoke to him in 2002. Robert Mugabe died last week at the age of 95. In the extended version of my interview with Martin Meredith, we talked about the likelihood that Mugabe would hold power for the rest of his life. That didn't end up happening. Mugabe was deposed by a coup just two years ago. His nephew told the BBC recently that he died a very bitter man, having never achieved much of his Marxist utopia ideas for Zimbabwe, and the country is certainly still struggling mightily with corruption and poverty. Between now and the fall, we'll bring you more stories like this from our 25-year run.
Coming up after the break, we'll have our Food Monday segment with Monica Ng, and we'll find out about an exciting addition to the Mexican cuisine scene. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our Food Monday segment with contributor Monica Ng. Good to see you, Monica. Good to see you, Jerome. And Monica brought a friend today. Chef Carlos Gaetan has been in Chicago for more than two decades. He worked his way up the ranks to open his celebrated restaurant Mexique in uh, West Town in 2008. By 2013, he became the first Mexican chef to earn a Michelin star. Mexique closed in 2018, and Chef Gaetan returned to Mexico with a vow that he would return and open another Chicago restaurant. And he is back with an ambitious Rither North project in three stages that starts this month. And this month's project that is opening is Suco. It's a tribute to his hometown in the state of Guerrero. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Tell us about your life story. A lot of executive chefs do not have your life story. Um, can you give us the the mini version? Yeah, you know, I grew up in a really town down in Mexico, and then I came to the U.S. basically and started working at dishwasher. And as you know, I learned my way up until I opened Mexique. And you became a Michelin star kind of chef. Yes, I guess you know when you every dish it has a story behind. It really shows, you know, and and the flavors. What was the key to your trajectory there, do you think? You know, I think it, it has to be that you work really hard for something. You have to believe, you know, that you're capable to do so many great things and you're different than everybody else. That's what it is. I understand that your mom also cooked um, in Guerrero and that you were um, you hunted wild game. Tell me about cooking, you know, in your early days. You know what? Uh, growing up in Guerrero, it was amazing because uh, we come, we come from, you know, a very humble family. So sometimes we didn't have money to go to the market. So my father taught me how to hunt. So I used to go with him all the time and bring an animal, you know, sacrifice an animal and you learn how to utilize every part of the animal, so it's no waste. And obviously, my mom, she became an amazing cook. She used to cook one venison in many different ways, so I learned a lot from her. Wow, I never think of venison when I think of a Mexican cooking, but wow, you probably took it from field to table uh, right there on your own. Yeah, even, you know, including uh, wild uh, vegetables as well, you find tomatoes, you find a lot of herbs. They grow up uh, in the mountains. Wow, foraging too. I, I had great Mexican, at a, a great venison at a Mexican restaurant up in the northwest side. It was terrific. I, oh, I can't wow. remember the name of the restaurant, but it was. I, I've, I've seen it on menus and really liked it. Yeah. Um, to, you know, this new project is you know, some expression of your hometown. Uh, tell us about your hometown, first of all, and why what you, what you wanted to bring uh, from your hometown into this You know, restaurant. I guess one of the biggest things that I'm going to do is just to welcome everybody home. So you come to Tsuko. Basically, Tsuko means place of thorns, and it's the name of that my hometown. That doesn't sound welcoming. 
but it's it's <laughs> it's just not the name of my 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 town, Witsuko. Yeah. This is stinking onion. You've got some very <laughs> und- undesirable town yeah, names delicious. in your background. Yeah. I know, but I, I, you know, being at home is very comfy for me just to cook and make you feel comfortable. So that's why you know it's just gonna be so special just to be there. Now, in in Guerrero, there's a lot of indigenous flavors and things. That's correct. We use a lot of wild ingredients. Uh, so, are there things we eat all the time and think of them as Mexican food that are indigenous food in your head? Yeah, well, most of them is like you know, uh, not in here, but iguanas, you know, iguanas. rabbits, uh, a lot of insects. Hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna have some insects. Now, is mole kind of a uh, indigenous thing? Uh, what is mole? it? Mole. Mole. Yeah, mole was invented by a, a nun and that was in Puebla, and she was not even Mexican. She was from Europe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and it's a mix of so many it's a things. Mix, yeah. I'm sorry, did you say you might have insects on your menu at some yes, point? Yes, escamoles. Escamoles. You're familiar with escamoles. They're ants, right? The or eggs. ant eggs. Ant eggs. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, at some point I'm going to have those. We were going to bring those escamoles from from Mexico, so hopefully it happens. Okay. We're talking with Chef Carlos Gaetan about his new effort, uh, Suco, in River North. Um, so tell us more about the the restaurant you want, your your, your kind of whole project here, because this is the first phase of several. Yeah. The second one is going to be a Mexican bakery, Penango. And basically, you know, we want to showcase everything what is Mexico right now, but uh, it's going to be a very comfort food to go, sandwiches, salads. And then uh, the third project is going to be Tales of Carlos Gaitan. That is going to be my baby. Uh, basically, it's going to be only 12 seats, and that's what I'm going to be cooking personally myself. Uh, I have my own uh, kitchen right there, and only 12 people is going to be dining. So it's going to be r- really fine dining. I'm going to take Mexican cuisine to the next level. Wow. Um, you know, some people say you should just cook the food um, of your ethnic background, but you have mastered French cuisine at Bistro Margot. You were the chef. What do you think about people learning the food of other cultures? You know, the thing is when you learn so much about their culture, you always feel part of that culture. So when I cook my Mexican cuisine, I always had to incorporate some influence, somehow, some ingredients to balance uh, flavors in each dish, and it helps a lot. So were people surprised when when they said, I'd like to see the chef um, yeah. at, at Bistro Margot? Yeah, the people were surprised. Even, this, you know, asked me questions in French, and like, oh, sorry, <laughs> no hablo es only hablo inglés. Yeah. <laughs> well, so it, Tales of Carlos Gaetan, you're going to, is there going to be that French element? Is that is that a Absolutely. A I think it needs to have the French elements uh, because the the way that I want to execute every dish, it has to have them, you know, including the service. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's going to be, you know, a bit like, let's say, Jose Andres restaurant mini bar where, you know, you sit at a counter and the chef brings you dish by dish. Is it yes. going to be that special? Yeah, it has to be very special. You know, cooking, uh, people really love them. You know, when they come to a restaurant and they see the chef, I think they get motivated more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I had really special surprise. I don't want to say it, but uh, okay, it's going to be a really yeah, unique restaurant. You're keeping a lot of secrets. Um, 
your three projects are going to be just a few blocks away from Rick Bayless's Toblobampo, Frontera, and Choco. So three really interesting Mexican concepts really near each other. Do you feel like you're in competition with Chef Bayless? Not at all. Everything that we do in Mexico is more personal. It is really, you know, uh, my story behind in every dish. So I'm not competing with no one. It's just telling my story behind. Uh, do you think people have um, a kind of different idea of what Mexican food is, that it, it is not necessarily fine dining food, but it's really yummy comfort food? And, you know, you're kind of spanning the gamut of these two worlds. You you want to bring people home, and it sounds like a comfort place, and then you want to have the fine dining end too. Yeah, I'm going to showcase everything that is happening right now in Mexico, you know, from fast food to a fine dining experience. So I think with these three places that are going to open, and basically I'm going to showcase my whole entire country. <laughs> um, well, you were just uh, spent time in Mexico. Do you, are there things you want to bring back here to this experience now? Uh, absolutely. I spent uh, a year, a uh, couple months in Mexico, uh, creating my menus and spending time with the local chefs, local people, just learning more about my culture. Now, I understand that, you know, your daughter was saying, hey, Dad, yeah, you could go back to Mexico and have like a restaurant with lines around the block, the celebrated chef. But that's not you. I think you want to come back to Chicago, right? How, what was her influence in terms of bringing you back? You know what? My daughter is everything for me. She's an amazing daughter, very smart. And I love the fact that she's very sincere to me. And she wanted the best for me. So the minute that she speaks, because I was ready just to give up and go back to Mexico and stay in Mexico. And like, she's like, you're not that kind of warrior. You know, you like to fight and be one of the best. You go, go back to Mexico. Everyone loves you. And you're going to be successful since day one. But you like challenge. And challenge is what has built you out, who the person who are, you know, right now. So I took the challenge. I think it was really smart on my daughter and, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, the, the challenge, I mean, you're building three things. Mm -hmm. That's uh, Why didn't you just do one? Why didn't you just go for one? Isn't one e the easier route to go? You know what? I, I believe, you know, life will give you opportunities. And why not? You know, I, I learned so much in, this, in my stage of life that those opportunities, you had to take them and uh, – Probably next year I'm going to be very happy just to see everything. You know, I know it's a lot of hard work right now for me. Uh, barely sleep, but hey, I'm going to take this to the next level. I understand you You want to create a, a dream team of top chefs and mixologists from, from all over the world. Can you tell me about who you're bringing in? Absolutely. You know, Jesus Escalera, he's, uh, he was just named uh, Best Pastry Chef in Latino America. He's from Spain. But he has a restaurant down in Guadalajara, Jalisco. So I had two young ladies there training for him. Mm -hmm. Right now we're working on their visa, so they can be my pastry chefs in here. Uh, also, um, Mika, Mika, he is the best mixology that we have in Mexico. He was born in France. He has 11 years living in Mexico. In 2016, in the 50 best, he was named as the best mixology of the world. So wow. he's working behind my bar, my menu. Hopefully um, he'll be here very soon working with my 
my uh, bartenders. Um, how hard is it to assemble a team like that? I mean, visas and everything, and uh, is that crazy right now? Is that bad? I mean, we're, we're seeing a time where you know it is hard to get people in and out of this country. It is really hard, but when they got the talent, it's no other way. I mean, because I'm looking for the talent in here doesn't mean that I don't have them, but they don't have the experience working with the Mexican culture. You know what I mean? So I want them to understand exactly um, all the Mexican culture and put it in everything that we do. So that's that's why it's difficult, but it make it easy for me to uh, get their visas. Now, Suco opens uh, when exactly? It's going to open uh, September 16, Independence Day for Mexico. All right. And it's uh, where is it exactly? 720 North State Street. 720 North State Street, Suco. Um, sounds great. I uh, can't wait to go there. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll stop in for breakfast and get our, our sandwiches at Banango, the bakery, and then go for lunch at Suco. Wait, when's, the, when's the bakery open? When are the ba- well, we're shooting hopefully for middle of October for the... Um, oh, good. It's yeah. going to be fast. It's going to be fast. So we will be able to go soon. <laughs> yes. All right. Chef Carlos Gaetan uh, has been in Chicago for more than two decades now and is rolling out Suco and uh, several other projects here. We look forward to checking them out. Thanks a lot for coming in and talking about them. And thank you, Monica Eng, for another fine Food Monday. My pleasure. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with a friend from our Global Activism series. He is a juggler-turned-environmentalist. Kevin Adair is down in the Dominican Republic, and he is helping people... um, make a better planet there he's he's got a very complicated uh thing where he's he's cooking stoves and he's bringing them into haiti and people are not cutting down the forest it's a terrific thing hope you can join us tomorrow on worldview i'm jerome mcdonald and you've been listening to worldview on wbez at a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.